Hi, I'm Jen. And I'm Jen. Welcome to Marginalia Pod. Where we treat reading as a sacred practice and find meaning and connection through our favourite books. I would like to begin by acknowledging the Gurungai and Daruk people, traditional custodians of the land where I'm recording today, and pay my respects to their elders past and present. I'd also like to acknowledge Tangata Funawa of Tsifanganuyatara, where I'm recording today. Um, so this week we're reading chapters 13 and 14 through the theme of integrity. And I actually really like these chapters because things were happening. Hmm. Um, but I forgot about the theme until like the last read through. So who knows? <laughs> um, but do you have a story about integrity you'd like to tell? Yeah, so I do have a story and it might be a bit waffly. So I apologize in advance for that. Integrity is actually one of my key personal values. It's like one of hmm. the very foundational pillars of my self-worth, I guess, Um it's a great cause of distress for me when I feel like I can't act with integrity or I'm being challenged or forced to act in a way that I feel goes against my principles. Mm. Something I struggle with a lot and it can get me into a lot of trouble, particularly in a work context, I've found. Mm. Um, like I've often referred to myself as a problem child for managers because there's very little room for your personal, moral and ethical principles and values sometimes when you're part of a big organizational machine and I found in some roles in the past I would often get up managers backs because I would question things because they were going against what I viewed as my personal values and what I thought was the organizational's values but when push came to shove weren't actually the organizational's values so yeah it's just this thing um that I found that I can't park my values in favor of an organizations. Mm. And it doesn't feel honest to me. But the thing is, I didn't really understand that about myself until a few years ago. So for a long time, I used to be really unhappy in my work. I would start an organization, but really into it, really excited. And then I would get, I don't know, maybe six months in and then get really disillusioned because I just came up against this wall all the time and I didn't really understand what was going on. And I used to think, this is just it for me. I'm always going to be miserable at work. I'm always going to struggle because that's just what work is. Four years ago, I was working in an organization that had all the right values on paper and that I started out really passionate about. And um, this sort of happened and I was running up against issues where my personal values were coming up against, you know, a a rock and an immovable object type situation, you know, a rock and a hard place. And It made me quite anxious and I became really disengaged and unhelpful in a professional environment. And I'd just be really snarky and short-tempered. And generally, I just didn't like myself like that. And I made the decision to quit my job because I didn't... That's not who I am. That's not who I want to be. So I didn't want to put myself in a situation where I was becoming that because I was unhappy on another level. So I quit that job. And I got a new job working for an organization that, again, had all the right values on paper. And I felt I could genuinely make a change there and work for an absolutely incredible woman. Like, she was just amazing. And, again, that was the situation with the values of the organization aligned with my own. But what I had to do to deliver what was being asked of me, that didn't line up with my values. Uh, So I yet again became really unhappy and I struggled a lot. And there were other things that were going on there that sort of led to me having this really complete and utter breakdown. Um, But while it was all happening, 
I was really worried again that this is it like I'm just always going to be unhappy and I'm just always going to struggle at work and this is just going to be my life which as you know one of my key motivating factors is also that I'm really good at my job so this is a really difficult thing for me to accept that I can be really good at my job but also deeply unhappy um but thankfully that hasn't turned out to be the case so I've been in a job now for over a year that never ever ever rubs up against my personal values that I can go to work every day and feel like I'm acting with integrity and that I'm being treated with integrity and my boundaries are accepted and I cannot explain to you what that has done for my life like what Mm. a massive difference that has made to my personal kind of happiness to my career on every aspect of my life and it's something that I didn't even know was an issue until four years ago and that just blows my mind that once you know what your personal values are and you actually strive to like line up everything in your life to deliver them there you can find happiness so that's my story (laughs) I love it and that's such a good thing to remember because I do think we often I mean we we all want to work in a job we don't hate but we also want to work in a job we love and and you're not you're not going to love every job all of the time but it really helps if you don't actively hate yourself at your work and if you don't actively hate the work you're doing yeah and I th- there's just something about this idea that your job should make you happy or that you know you should live for your job and I don't necessarily believe that's the case but I think you should feel respected at your job and mm. part of that is also respecting yourself doing the job absolutely so I think what I struggled with is like I couldn't respect myself because I didn't feel like I was acting with integrity right so yeah. then I was unhappy but now that I feel like I am I don't have this extra pressure that's pulling me down oh Listen, I am really glad that you are happy in your job. And I'm glad that you don't have that additional stress. Um, so what have you been doing this week that has given you a moment of wonder? I mean, I know, but I want everyone else to know too, because it's really exciting. Um, so yes, my moment of wonder this week has been that I have, beyond hope, fallen back in love with writing again. Yay! Oh. I'm so <laughs> excited about this. You should be excited because it's almost 99% because of you and this podcast (laughs) Um, and you recommending Harry Potter and the Sacred Text to me played a massive part in it as well. Um, (laughs) So just for a little bit of background, I I think of myself as a storyteller. I have all my life, like my mum tells the story about me telling kids at primary school, like a kindy actually, not even primary school, like kindy, like always having them gather around me and I tell them stories and things. And so that's something that I always thought of myself as. And then I ended up studying writing at university just because it was something that I was always very good at. But to be honest, I can't remember the last time I felt actual joy in the process of writing. Like I, it would have to predate mm. university. I don't think I ever enjoyed writing anything I did at uni. It always just became something that you did mm. for you know assignments and things like that so it always felt like work like writing always felt like work for me ever since uni but you must be an amazing technical writer (laughs) because if you're able to like get a degree in writing hd thank you and be able to do it (laughs) yes see there you go i'm bright siding a bit oh yeah yeah. like i don't i absolutely learned a lot and i really i did enjoy it in its way but the the writing was hard and it was hard for me to accept because i've never found writing hard before that but I think something just shifted in my Mm. brain because then you start writing for a different audience I guess is what you're doing you're writing for the mark and yeah I wasn't writing for myself I guess is the thing so I and I haven't written a single thing creatively in over six years 
not since I've been in New Zealand. I haven't been able to. Like, I've had loads of ideas. I just never sit down and write them, which I've spoken to you about. And then, um, yeah. probably, what, two weeks ago, I started writing. And I am mm. writing fan fiction, which, lol. But never mind. It's amazing. It's an amazing way to write. Just what it's done, the freedom it's given me to just love writing is just incredible. So I've written about 16,000 words in the last two weeks. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. I can't stop. Like this morning, I, I was I woke up late this morning. I was having a shower. I had to get out of the shower and to go write something because I had a thought. And so I'm sitting in a ah. towel, dripping water everywhere. That's the and best. And like, it's just been incredible. I cannot express to you how much joy this has brought into my life. And just like the magic of creating Yay. and just like loving what I'm doing and just really enjoying it. And not, not even thinking about who I'm writing for or why I'm doing it. I'm just doing it because I enjoy it and that's just been my moment of wonder Mm. it's just been so awesome and it's because of you (laughs) oh thank you that is awesome i am so excited because i really love writing how about um your moment of wonder oh well um as i mentioned about eight thousand four (laughs) hundred twenty seven times it was all of the parent teacher conferences this week i've been very stressed about them both my kids need support and accommodation in various ways so with my daughter's school it's like I just go in and basically give them the ADHD primer. Like, this is what executive function looks like. This is what rejection sensitivity dysphoria looks like. This is what will happen if you even reprimand her a little bit. She'll go all to pieces and you won't get anywhere for like a week because you will have betrayed her on a fundamental level. And it does not make sense, but that's how it is. And like, her school's really great because it's really small and it's a positive psychology school. So like, they're just all about building kids up and like, mistakes are a part of learning and like you don't really get in trouble unless you're actively being a jerk so yeah like it was it was good so we finally have this meeting and the science teacher came along and she was like I just want to give her extension work because she loves science so much so that was really great because I've never pushed my kids to be academic I've always just been like do your best and we'll be proud um so the fact that she was like oh yeah she's she's doing so well and she loves science so much I want to give her more to do and I was like oh yes she'll love that anything that she can be a helper and she's like sign me up so that was great and then her teacher made a point of telling me that my daughter was just so lovely and kind and generous to the other kids and so I'm like sitting there like yes that is my amazing child (laughs) she's so good thinking like I do not deserve this wonderful kid and then um we went to the cafe we go to the cafe every Tuesday afternoon while my son does tap class and we do homework at the cafe and last week my daughter decided to like befriend the waitress and this week she was like, oh, I, I made a little pom-pom and I, I've got them to show you. Oh, okay. That's fun. Yeah, they're little, yeah, they're little yarn pom-poms, like wool pom-poms. Um, she had made one for the waitress and I'm like, okay, but you can't just call her the waitress. You have to get her name. So she introduced herself and the waitress was like, oh, I'm Viv. It's nice to meet you. What's your name? And so they had like a little chat. And then when my daughter disappeared to go to the bathroom, um, Viv came over and told me, look, I've seen so many kids come through this cafe and I have kids of my own and I can just tell looking at her and interacting with her that she is so beautiful and she has such a kind soul and she's so gorgeous and I was just like oh thank you it was really good and then we had my son's IEP which is an individual education plan meeting and that's standard procedure at his school and they were so funny because they're like you know we don't really know what he's capable of which is very typical of my son he's so smart but he just is like really chill about (laughs) it um 
But they, they both said, like, but he's just the sweetest kid. Like, he's so excited and happy to be there, and he loves learning. It's incredible that he just is always, he always just shows up with a big smile on his face. And I was like, yes, thank you. That's my beautiful, amazing, optimistic chat. Like, it's just, I had such a good week for people complimenting my kids. Well, it's absolutely true. And he is just a ray of sunshine. Every time he pops up to say hi to me, he's always got the biggest smile on his face. And he's just so cute. And I loved when... (laughs) your daughter showed me her Lego collection and took me for a little tour on the house. Like that was delightful. They're delightful. They're great kids. Yeah, I feel very lucky. So it was a good week for me and a good week for you. It has been a great week. Go us. Right. Well, shall you do some chapter summaries for us? I would love to do some chapter summaries. Chapter 13. Islington is employing Krupp and Vandemar and asks them to keep Dor safe. Krupp and Vandemar dispose of the Marquis's body in the sewers beneath London. Meanwhile, Dor, Hunter, and Richard discover the location of the next floating market where they plan to meet up with the Marquis as agreed. The Marquis's body is dredged up by the sewer folk and Old Bailey is pressed into service by a rat. Chapter 14. Dor, Hunter, and Richard arrive at the market where Dor's old friend Hammersmith welcomes them. He makes Dor a chain for the Blackfriars Key. There's no sign of the Marquis, so Richard decides to enlist a new guide. Hunter disapproves. Old Bailey buys the Marquis's body from the sewer folk and revives him. By the time the Marquis gets back to the floating market, the others have left. So, a lot going on. <laughs> so much going on. Yeah. Um, and it really threw me because, like you and your relationship with integrity, like I had to really take myself out of what I consider to be integrity, which is basically my moral code, and throw it out the window and say, this is not mm. their moral code. I have to look at what their moral code is. And then I can decide what is an act of integrity yes, and what isn't. I had to do that as well because integrity means different things to different people, right? Because we don't all have the same moral, ethical yeah. guidelines. So Exactly. Yeah, I was quite looking forward to discussing that with you in terms of Krupp and Vandermar because I think, yes. you know, while we wouldn't think that they have any integrity by our moral codes, by their own moral code, they actually have a lot mm-hmm. of integrity, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. In fact, I would say that they are acting with the most integrity. Yes, out of anyone. Yeah, because they're the ones that are staying truest to their mission. Like, they object every single time where they have to not do what they're really good at and want to do and believe is right. I was actually fixated on one particular bit of marginalia in this section, and it was just this one Mm. quote that I just thought had so much going on in it. So it was on page 258. It's when Krupp is on the phone to Islington and he says, Most people would be content with hiring assassins for executions, sly killings, vile murders even. Only you, sir, would hire the two finest cutthroats in the whole world of space and time and then ask them to ensure a little girl remains unharmed. Now, I just had so many feelings about this one sentence. (laughs) One thing is because, like, Krupp is constantly finding his integrity challenged by Islington and he takes it way harder than Vandermar does but he yeah. he just feels like their their guiding principles are undermined at every moment right and he is uncompromising in his worldview I just thought it was so interesting the idea of bad people quote unquote having integrity yeah I thought about that too and I thought this is it was really lucky we picked this one for this chapter because it really gave me a chance to think about Krupp and Vandemar not as just these objectively horrible Mm. people um but as people who have a vocation and really believe in the value of their vocation and take a lot of pride in their work and yet are frustrated by the inability to do it like they're hamstrung by their employer which is exactly what you were talking about with your your job situation um and it doesn't make me like them anymore but it certainly helps me to understand them that like these are people who want to be doing what they're best at they want to be doing what they're called to do and they've found 
a niche in a world where arguably their services are needed or wanted mm. and they're frustrated because they're currently under the employ of someone who's not letting them do what they feel they're yeah. best at. And we see this multiple times in this section. Like there's this one bit where Mr. Vandermaas says, you know, that's good. I wouldn't like another telling off because, you know, they've already killed the Marquis yeah. and he's like, oh, we did what we thought was right, but our employer wouldn't like that sort of thing. And then there's Croup yeah. having his little soliloquy and he's like, I would confess my soul is irked by the necessity to hide our light under a bushel. Like to him, it's a crime that they have to act in this way, right? I really love that whole hiding our light under a bushel thing. And Vandemar is just like, whatever. I wish this guy would push the trolley for a turn. <laughs> the other thing about that quote that I thought was so interesting is the space and time. And this comes up again on page 261 where he's, Croup says there's other times and other places that would properly appreciate two pair of dab hands. So like, are they just straight up time travelers? I think they must be. I kept thinking like they could fold space and time, but yeah, I mean, maybe they're just immortal. Yeah, which brought me to, to the next bit where he calls Dora a little girl in that quote, right? And like, we've already discussed mm. that she seems older than she looks and obviously time moves a bit differently in London below. But if you're an immortal being or timeless, placeless beings like Krupp and Vandermeer apparently are, then everyone's going to be a little girl mm. to you. Everyone's going to be like an insignificant bug to you, right? Yeah. It's just fascinating. <laughs> I, I kind of felt like the little girl thing was more to impress the point that like they could be off doing more important things killing actual people who need killing rather babysitting. than mm. babysitting apparently yeah so like it, it's smacks of the misogyny that we've seen kind of creeping around the edges mm -hmm. and also overtly in some places yeah and that's actually when I originally noted it I just did a sad face next to little girl because I had that misogyny thing and then I thought about it in terms of them as like timeless beings Islington is interesting as well because we now know that he's employing them. Yeah, I don't like that he got Dor to get this key because it means that he couldn't get it or he knew enough about the ordeal to be able to not get it. Mm -hmm. It makes me very nervous that he's using these other people to achieve ends but they're not even sure mm. about it. Like if he employed them then that means he's responsible for killing her family, yeah. right? So what does it say about the fact that Trust Islington was the last thing on her dad's diary and she had that thought where she was like in the dream she was like why didn't i find the diary mm -hmm. the first time yeah i mean it's fishy yeah, right it's, it's fishy. fishy um i had an interesting thought about islington which is a bit tangential but i kind of think that they look different to everybody who sees oh them. so it's what you expect to see almost yeah like ethereal androgynous beauty yeah that's really interesting because i thought of islington as well and just the kind of in terms of integrity they challenge that concept because you kind of expect a certain kind of behavior from an angel right you when you think about an angel and integrity yeah. you've got a very clear moral and ethical compass that guides you but that's just yeah. because that is you know my perception of what i think their integrity should be but yeah, yeah. they might have entirely different moral guidance you know? Yeah. So what do you think that everything that Islington is doing is to protect London below? Because like if the dreams of Atlantis are so harrowing and like they've had to orchestrate this plot then to keep something or to do something. I, like I'm wondering what the motive is, but it does seem to be tied to their previous failure as a guardian of a city. 
did you find the dream quite harrowing? Because I read that, well, I, I kind of read that as Islington being very discompassionate in a way. Yeah, yeah, there was no emotional impact for Islington, right? Like, you don't feel as if they've experienced it. No, they're just witnessing it, Even right? though they're, they're just there. And like, what, angels aren't human. Like, that's, that's the thing that comes up a lot. They're not human. And they're also not intrinsically good, right? We do have fallen angels. Yeah, I just, there's definitely something that's, inhuman about a lot of the people in London mm. below in both what I would consider against my moral code to be good and bad ways but yeah Islington seems to take their job very seriously but also there seems to be a lot of that self-interest and I just don't know what the motivation is I need I need the motivations they've got weird vibes Islington yeah very weird vibes I agree I also I do love that you know when Islington calls Krupp and Vandermar he touches the water and then it makes the phone ring and he can actually see them previously mm. I did mm-hmm. think you know Krupp carries on like this when he thinks the employer's not looking but technically Islington <laughs> can be watching him at all times I kind of love that too because I was thinking about the like calm voice but punching holes in yes. the walls. Yeah. <laughs> One of their previous conversations. Yeah, like he would have just been carrying on and Islington would have been watching the whole thing. And there's no integrity in that either, Islington. You can't be spying on people without their knowledge. What are you? The government? No, just kidding. I think that there's a lot of integrity in the social systems. The adherence to the social systems yeah. in London below. Yeah. Aside from the first, we heard, like, who's Verney is this? Who's fiefdom? And then we didn't hear about that again. Um, I guess because everybody knows Dor. Like, it does seem that once you know your place, you're able to move around very freely within that. And as long as you know the rules, you can then exist within them as long as you're applying them correctly. There's a lot of mm. wiggle room, but there does seem to be a pretty strong adherence to the integrity of the system yes like and you see that in the market truce right and also the whole Mm -hmm. idea of the market Mm -hmm. you know kind of being this thing that can't be touched like i think door says on page 265 she says i don't think we can lie about it the market is special it's a very fairyland thing maybe the market itself is sentient it's kind of yeah there's this one core moral principle in london below and it's the market and it's this idea of favors as well because as soon as you owe someone a favor that is something that you cannot take back right and that is very Mm -hmm. closely adhered to the idea of like swapping favors so yeah there's integrity in that too and you see that when you know the marquee all these favors that he's called in really come to his aid in this section like old bailey helps him yeah golden the giant rat helps him oh my gosh the giant rats (laughs) the size of a house cat no thank you (laughs) and the fact that they all like there's a bunch of them and they live in this mammoth skull that they killed because of course they did yeah no it's a no from me (laughs) um i wanted to talk about the marquee in particular i wanted to talk about this line on page 271 where richard says to door are you sure the marquee will be at the market and door replies he won't let us down she said as confidently as she could i'm sure he'll be there why (laughs) the marquee has never shown himself to be a trustworthy man or a man of integrity so but her father has assured her and his word is something that door can trust that's a good point her father has called in this favor and is like basically if anyone in my family needs anything you're there whether you like it or not Hmm. as annoyed as i was with the marquis up to this point after he died and came back i was quite happy that he came back because 
He's mm-hmm. ours now. He's not perfect. He's quite awful, but I feel like I know him. And so I'm like, no, we, we get to yeah. keep him. Yeah. And I think there's something, there's a bravery in that as well, that he purposely went and got himself murdered just so he could get information, right? Like that is, yeah. that is something. It takes a lot of prior planning. Like you get echoes that he's been capable of this because before he even went back to Richard's flat with Richard the first time, he took that silver box to mm. Old Bailey. Thus incidentally introducing Richard to Old Bailey, Mm -hmm. which would help him out later. Like, it seems like everything that needed to happen happened. And also, I think he he really found the best person to help him out in Old Bailey. It's actually, like, the best deception, right? Because he acts like such a rake and, like, he doesn't care about anything. And, like, but secretly he's pulling all these strings behind, like, behind the scenes. So he puts up this front where no one really takes him seriously, but he's actually got some serious power to back him up. Yeah, all those favors he's cultivated. Yeah. And I, I thought it was really telling when he says to Old Bailey, you know, oh, I, th- I owe you a favor. Because to him, that is the ultimate price to owe someone a favor. Absolutely. And I do think that Old Bailey did go a bit above and beyond. Yeah, I mean, Old Bailey, what an MVP. <laughs> he's doing all these really hard things and he's super scared about it, but he shows up. Hmm. Four for you, Old Bailey. Four for you. You know, he treated the sewer people like actual human beings, which not a lot of other people seem to do. That showed a lot of both compassion and integrity, right? Because the compassion in honoring the deal as the sewer people do it, like they both play acted, they both had this commitment mm-hmm. to the bit, which was so cute. Like, oh, I don't know if I could possibly let go of this corpse. Oh, I understand. But like, what about this really fancy thing? And then at the end, you know, like they seal it with a hug, which is not something you would want. Like, I just do not want to hug somebody who lives in the I don't want to hug anyone I don't know. End of story. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. I want to hug the people in my hug circle. <laughs> That's it. Yeah, I just, um, but he does it. Like, he does it, and he just holds his breath and gets on with it. And, it, yeah, it's, it's, it's a real and, strength for him, because if Hunter and Richard maybe engaged mm. with their environment a bit more, instead of just, like, turning their noses up at the sewer folk, they would have seen the Marquis's corpse. Ah, I think the Hunter did see the Marquis. Ah. Because there's that line. Let me see if I can find it. Any sign of the Marquis yet? He asked. Hunter shook her head. She could have reached out her hand and touched him. I was like, there's no way that this woman could have gotten a switchblade off of a a nine-year-old cave painting child without the child knowing and not have seen the Marquis. That is a good point. I completely missed that. I just read that as like, oh, she's just oblivious. But she wouldn't be because... That's against who that that would compromise her integrity in a way, wouldn't it? Because that's what she prides herself on being this like amazing Amazonian warrior. Mm, interesting. Yeah, so I'm not sure if that if it like only extends to living people or if she really did just see him and walk away, but But I guess if you see a corpse, but you're not gonna think, oh, better take that and revive it, you'll just be like, Oh well, that's a shame. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Um, and did you notice all of the language around the sewers as well? I thought that spoke to the integrity of the sewage system. Hmm. I thought, yeah, like the cathedral of brickwork. Yeah, so they are church-like, red brick cathedrals made with craftsmanship. And um, Dunnikin, who's like the leader of the sewer people, knows them better than the builders. I was trying to remember, because I have definitely heard that before. I've definitely heard about the magnificence of the London sewers. And I was trying to remember where I'd heard that. And I think mm. it might have been a Rivers of London book. Yeah, he yeah. does talk about them. It's <laughs> like, why do I know about yeah. this already? Like, even though I've read it. There was a lot of just amazing imagery. And I do think that one of my favorite things about this book is that it is quite a bit of it is just like a love letter to the underground infrastructure of London. Yeah. And that's really important. Like, I do think a lot of people take 
these sort of things for granted. And I love the description of how, why the sewers were built, right? And also the description about the mm. Wall of London being built and how it was basically yes. just, you know, she was getting snarky because people were asking her how big her walls were and so they built the walls. Like, I just kind of <laughs> love that. It makes these, like, intangible things, these intangible concepts because they happened so long ago that we just think they've always existed. But someone decided to build them. It just makes it real. Yeah, it's so, yeah. L- listen, I think if you live somewhere like London, you could spend your whole life learning about these things and you'd never get to the bottom of half of the things you see on a daily basis. And it reminds me of one of the things that I really love about this book because my favorite thing about London was always the juxtaposition between old and new. Like, I love that I would go for a walk along Southwark and, like, there would be an ancient church that was there back in, you know, when London was first founded or whatever. And then it's, like, right next to a ginormous skyscraper that is made entirely of glass <laughs> and blinds people when they cross the river and... Is that the one that melted all the doormats <laughs> yeah, yeah. and the cars? and Just like, but it's all over. And especially like in the city of London, you have these really old tiny streets and they, you know, they're named after the shops that used to be on them. And then there's like these super modern things happening two blocks down. And I just, there's something so magical about that. There's something so awesome about the passage of time and being able to witness it. And like in a, two, a city block, yeah. right? You can see these amazing things. And I feel like nothing, no other city really does it the way that London does. And what, happens and never where is that you kind of see that played out on a grand scale because you've got London above and London below which kind of also offers you that discrepancy yeah it's really I think you're right that London is very unique in that way I just I mean I, I was thinking of other cities I've been to that are quite old I know that Paris has a lot of like new and old mixed together I don't know London just has a vibe like don't, I absolutely adore Paris and if I could live anywhere for three months and write my book it would be Paris but it just doesn't feel the same in that sense. Because, you know, Rome is the same. Like, you've got really, really old things, right? You know, the, the first city and mm. Rome and lava. But it doesn't have that kind of old and new coexisting in the way that London does. Like, in London, you yeah. can believe that there is a secret world underneath it. I don't know. Yeah, okay. Yeah. I don't know. It's just something that always gets me. And, it, yeah, it's just reminded me that that was, I think, what really drew me to this book. And it would drew me to the Rivers of London series as well. Because mm. it's just up the ante of that yeah oh look you like reading about a person who really loves a city and knows it really well that city being london i cannot recommend the rivers of london enough because it's just like a long love letter to the idea of doing magic magical policing in london and really really spending time with places and things and like because they're personified and it's just so awesome um I thought that Hunter's integrity was kind of challenged in this. Like, you know, Dawes sends her away with Richard and she's like, I'm your bodyguard. I stay by your side. And Richard gets all puffed up being like, oh, I can go get the food in a really gross patriarchal way. And then Dawes like, Richard needs your protection more than me, which is true. And then she kind of takes that very seriously. And when he's talking to Lamia, she's like, he's not yours. And then she's immediately by his side and Richard's an idiot, basically. Yeah, I thought that was really interesting that the velvet or the Velcro, as he called her, uh, which I think speaks to the fact that this creature is obviously muddling. Him. Yeah, OK, you that's that's a good reading of it, because I I had a slightly more generous reading than you. I think you were just like, come I on, I was Richard. just like, are you kidding me? She's mentioned multiple times that she's a velvet. Velvet is not a hard word to remember. And you're like, oh, she's a Velcro. Like, I'm 
my patience is running thin with you, boy. Like she is also wearing a velvet dress, which is hilarious. <laughs> I honestly think he's glamoured mm, or something a bit. because sense. Yeah, he talks about how beautiful her foxglove eyes are. He talks about how it's been so long since he shared a joke with a woman, but there's no joke really. Yeah. Like it's not a shared thing. It's That just, would make sense. Yeah. She's, she's going to eat him or try to, right? Richard, we all have the information. She's a vampire. Like it's not hard to piece this together, yeah. mate. But okay. Yeah, but also I feel like Hunter should be saying to him, like, okay, well, the person I'm actually protecting has charged me with making sure you don't get eaten. So how about you don't because this is the information you need, which is this person will probably try and eat you later. Um, And if you don't want to be eaten by a vampire, then maybe we should find another Mm. way to the angel. But she doesn't. She makes a choice not to reveal any of that information. And this is a this is in direct contravention to like all the time she's given him information before when no Mm. one else would. Yeah, that is interesting. I wonder if it's also because Richard is less receptive to receive information. Like, I felt in this section, he has, he thinks he has a newfound maturity. He thinks he has survived this ordeal and therefore now he's amazing and he isn't listening to people who arguably know more than him. And not only that, Mm. but he acts like a total dick about it. So I just think it's the worst kind of arrogance of a mediocre white man who did one good thing is now convinced of his greatness. I told you how I was reading the X talk. Um, the two friends, the the best friends in the book, have a saying: "What would a mediocre white man do?" I mean, I often wake up in the morning and just go, "God grant me the <laughs> the you know the confidence of a mediocre white man." Oh, it's so sad, but it's so true. <laughs> Let's just look at this on page two seventy four. Richard's, you know, he realized that he has somehow lost the need to stop and stare, which I think is actually a bit sad because Richard now thinks he's so grown up and smart. Um, And that makes me sad that he's lost his wonder and his imagination because it's like something that gave him a bit of softness for all the infuriating things about him. Yeah. And but like, does it also speak to his like callousness? Like, I think even in a market without fantastic beings, you'd want to kind of look and get like he's new to this world. Wouldn't you still be observing it? You would think so. He just is allowing himself to be clueless. Um, And then... On page 280, you know, he's having this argument about Lamia with Hunter and he said, Hunter just looks at him, she doesn't reply. And he, there's the line, had she looked at him that way the day before, he would have dropped the subject, but that was then. I'm like, mate. And then the one that really upset me was to page 287 where he's like, you just don't like that I'm sorting everything out for once. And he goes on this whole tirade about how amazing he now is. And I'm like, this is the wrong take. This is you having made a decision without having all the facts and people are telling you that you're making the wrong decision and you're just like, you're just jealous. And so I just feel like this is supposed to be his great, you know, he's now a mature grown-up adult. This is his hero's journey. He's reached a turning point. I'm like, oh, he's actually worse now? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Um, So I have a question for you about that because I really noticed it as well. Like, all of the other characters that I found reprehensible are starting to, like, redeem themselves in their own way, right? Mm. Is Richard worse? Do people from London above, when they get to London below, if they survive, do they become, like, a version of their worse selves? Mm, interesting. In order to survive? they have to shelve kind of the soft parts of themselves in order to make, mm-hmm. make it work. I mean, yeah, because in a way, you know, everyone kept saying to Richard, you won't survive, you don't survive, because he is so kind of wide-eyed and doe like doughy and wanders Squishy. around yeah but also as we discussed in the last episode it is this kind of disconnectedness and his kind of like way of being that actually allows him to survive so him then trying to park yeah. that side of himself because he's like i've survived this ordeal and like i'm a stronger man now is actually taking his strength away yeah 
It could be. I, I am willing to give Richard the benefit of the doubt a bit because I do think that Lamia has more of an yeah. effect on him than on Hunter and Dor. I do think that maybe if he had even that underlying inkling of like, oh, I could be important and do a job. Oh, I, I'm not important. I need Hunter. Like perhaps Lamia is like emotionally keying into that, like mm. an empath type of way and then like enhancing it. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's going, oh, well, I can add value, right? Like he's like, rubbing up against that you think I have no value but I can have value you know yeah it's like she's a villain no yeah I, I think that is a very good explanation and I was just um very like I didn't even think about that but that would make a lot of sense because this is a bit out of character it is Richard, like that's right? the thing that made me really annoyed I'm like why are you acting like this but I didn't consider that Lamia yeah. is probably yeah she would be getting into him there will be magic there she's been following him around yeah. she's marked him as prey it, yeah exactly hmm okay Richard I'll give you a break this time. Don't do it again. Don't do it again. Um, can we talk about the cave painters? Because that was one of my yeah. favorite parts. It's what it's in my tangential marginalia, but I do want to talk about how the fact that we've actually seen kids this time, and I really was excited because, like, oh, this isn't just adults who have fallen mm. through the cracks. It's also kids and families and like communities. Yeah, because it's mentioned the with the sewer folk as well that there are kids with them. Yeah. You can't have a community that's genuinely community without intergenerationality, mm-hmm, I think. That's fair. That's part of it is having, yeah. So, like, the society as it is, it has to be supporting its, like, it has to be supportive, it has to be interdependent, it has to be somewhat self-sustaining. Yeah. I don't know. I also just really love that Richard thought he was seeing real cave paintings. He's like, yeah, oh, wait, why is there a plane in this one? Um... I also love the line, the boy had the towering arrogance only seen in the greatest of artists and all nine-year-old boys. It does crack me up how much little boys can, like, absolutely puff out their chest and just, like, assert their independence. Well, he certainly was trying to assert his independence in this, wasn't he? So I have a final question mm-hmm. for you. I-, I think that Dora got a copy of the key made, and I think that's why she sent Richard away. I don't think it was just the chain. I actually think? cannot remember exactly what happens, but that is my gut feeling as well. I think she sent them both right? away because she's like, well, she knows that there's a traitor in the group, right? So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But she trusts Hammersmith. And also, he seems like a real he sweetheart. He does seem like a real sweetheart. And I think there was an act of compassion there when Dor was opening that puzzle box for him and there was a frog in there and she was like, you should keep him. He'll bring you good luck. I thought that was really kind and caring from Dor. That really was. I actually really liked that there was just this frog that had obviously been living in there for a while. Magic so frog. there's something to it. <laughs> Uh, look, I mean, if you have a magic frog, hang on to it. You never yeah. know. It was one of my tangential marginalia as well as like the description of Hammersmith making that rose where it's like it was a work of astonishing delicacy, mm. each petal perfect and distinct. And I love this image of like this big, beefy guy making something so mm. beautiful and amazing. It's just gorgeous. Is that like a trope in literature that I just don't know about that there are these like Hagrid-esque people floating around? Because the Hammersmith is Hagrid, right? <laughs> only metalworking and not crazy yeah. animals yeah right he's huge he's a giant i think it's like one of those things where it's like oh he's a big brute of a man but actually he's really like you know softly spoken and delightful i wonder isn't little john a little bit like that in like the robin hood stories as well everyone thinks he's this big guy but he's actually a bit sweet i think you're right you're onto something there's definitely this like big guy good heart sort of trope what else was i gonna say um, I think the only other kind of thing that I wanted to talk to it about was compassion. So I think the Old Bailey shows a mm. lot of compassion to the Marquis in this. But I also think 
I also think the Marquis shows the Old Bailey compassion in a way, because, you know, Old Bailey asks him what's it like to die, and he's very flippant and dismissive, yeah. but then he realises that, oh, this actually means something to Old Bailey, and he actually answers the question yeah. honestly, which is a big concession for the Marquis, I think. Yeah, well, he was willing to die for information, but he just gives this little bit away for free. And he calls him my friend. Who wouldn't love Old Bailey? He's a bit set in his ways, but he's ultimately kind. Yeah. If Richard pays a little bit more attention and really watches himself, he has the capacity to become someone like mm. Old Bailey. Possibly. We'll see. We'll see how much this glamour takes from him. Yes. Good point on the glamour. Um, so have we covered all of the tangential marginalia? I have definitely covered all of mine, which was mostly just being annoyed at Richard this week. <laughs> Fair enough. He was extremely ratty. I was not I just, I think because I'm also a woman who often have mediocre men who don't have all the information telling me what I should do. I really resented his behavior. I felt hashtag triggered mm-hmm. by it. <laughs> yeah. There's always going to be that one person. And it's usually, yeah, a white guy who thinks he knows everything. Who's just really kind of cruising along. And, and always, always has an opinion. <laughs> always has an opinion and is not often informed like we are expected and you know we we do get some leeway for this because we're white so we don't have to fight quite as hard for it we still have to fight for recognition and validation for like the simplest things like we have to fight not to be the ones taking notes in every meeting or be the one to bring the snacks in or get the water or make the coffee yes. the domestic things often fall to women in the workplace and the secretarial tasks often fall to women in the workplace and it's not okay and I just also think, you know, I think women often feel that we have to earn the right to speak up. So sometimes we won't, you know, oh, I don't know enough to say anything. Whereas I've never seen a man hold back because they felt like they didn't know enough to say something. And that's Richard. Like, you've got yeah, Hunter, who is true. the most accomplished bodyguard and this accomplished Hunter. And Richard's like, well, I actually know more than you now. I'm like, do you? Do you? Elaborate. He's digging that hole for himself and she's just basically watching mm. him. I'm sure she gets a lot of that, even from that nine-year-old boy. Trying to stab her. What? I do not love how much the women in this chapter were, again, pushed aside, pushed down. Even the girl rat was made to go and look at the marquee. The boy rat mm. told her to go. and go. I was like, is this necessary? Do we need this distinction? Yeah, it doesn't matter, does it? Could you not say... The smaller or the brown rat. Why is it about the gender of the rat? They're rats. I don't think that it matters so much, mm. does it? And I don't know if you noticed, but there was a, a mention of um, <laughs> Hunter's caramel smile in this section. Oh, I saw that. I saw that. Boy, I did not love I that. Just, <laughs> I didn't cross it out this time, but it took an act of uh, real willpower. I circled willpower. it with a uh, frowny face. Times were different in 1996. Yeah. We all had bangs and they all had big curls in them. We all had lip liner that did not match our lipstick. Glorious time. Coming back. Just let me have my eyebrows, okay? Yeah, no, we're not doing that again. I'm also fairly convinced that emo's making a comeback. I have seen a lot of asymmetrical fringes out there. And like, especially when I was down doing a lot of mm. university visits over the last couple of weeks, we've been going O weeks. And there were a lot of band t-shirts that kids were wearing for bands that they were three mm. years old when said band was around. And Okay, but like, to be fair, in my high school, everybody had a Nirvana, nevermind t-shirt. And we were all in in first grade when that album came <laughs> yeah out, so. i mean I, I also like bands that i was definitely not around when they were a thing but i've seen the rumblings of the emo and i'm like i'm not mad about it i'm like bring it back as soon as we see somebody with the short pixie cut with the spikes in the back but like the combed down fringe in the top no i did didn't you see, see it, it but what you, almost as good was the white 
the the blonde hair with the black. You remember when we did that? The blonde on the bottom and the black over the top or the other way around? The Narcissa Malfoy haircut with the asymmetrical fringe? Yes, I saw that on the street in public. Telling you it's coming back. I'm calling it. (laughs) All right, we're on email watch. Okay, you be on emo watch and I'll be on Buffy watch because Buffy was like my style icon. Mm, I think we're currently a clueless. Let's let's keep a watching brief on it. Um, did you have any other tangential marginalia? No, I mean we already talked about how much I love that there were kids in this. Like we got to see a lot of children this week, which I thought was really great. The sewer folk have kids, and the cave painters and Dora is also kind of treated like a kid by Hammersmith, which is. Like, he doesn't really do it in a hurtful way. He's just like, oh, my friend. And I think the last time he saw her, she must have been a bit mm. littler. So it's it's kind of like when you see that older cousin who's always seen you as, like, the kid cousin. And you feel that same, like, happy kidness. It reminded me of my uncle who used to pick me up like that when I was really little. Like, he would, yeah. you know, when he'd see me, he would pick me up and be like, hey, little miss, and, like, give me a big hug and... I remember once when I was like 12, I'm like, I'm not a little anymore. And I think it kind of broke his heart a little bit. Oh, I had a cousin who was much older than me. His name's Brian. And he would always give me shoulder rides. And so, like, of course, he was my favorite. But I definitely remember that feeling of, like, he's going to put me up on his shoulders again. I love that. Like, you just feel so special and so treasured. And I feel like Dora really felt that yeah. way with Hammersmith. So, like, I'm, I'm glad that she's got someone who's, like, friendly and lovable and trustworthy. And also- but who still respects yeah, her. Yeah, and it's so lovely because she's been through so much and so much trauma and she has this moment of, like, just being mm. a kid, basically, and being, like, carefree, and mm-hmm. he gives her that. So that's just delightful. And when it's time to do business, he's all about, like, he doesn't try and hoodwink her or treat her badly. Yes, and or... he's another person with integrity because she can trust him to be discreet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he even tries to, like, knock back the favor in return. He's like, oh, no, I, I wouldn't want to presume. And she's like, oh, mm. come on. What do you need opened? I'm sure there's something. Yeah, so I just really loved that. Uh, my other tangential thing was I wanted to talk a little bit about the London Wall, which I ended up looking up the exact piece of London Wall um, that is featured in this book. And it's actually quite cool. And it really does just sort of stick up out of the ground in the middle of nowhere. And is this crumbling Roman ruin. So it's by the Tower of London, hey? The Tower of London station. Yeah. I'm fairly sure I've been to this wall. I've definitely, oh yeah, I've just Googled it. I've definitely been there. Because I just, yeah, I vaguely, I was trying to remember it when I was reading it because I remember walking out of that station, Tower Hill Station, and being yeah, this like, one? what? Yes, yeah. Um, yeah, so if you can picture the two of them on the top of that, it doesn't look so hard to climb. I was very worried that it would be hard to climb, but. It's so bizarre. But see, that's what I love about London as well. It's just like this random wall in the middle of the city. Like, what? <laughs> the bits of that are underground are just wild, too. Like, they've just got bits that are like, Hanging out underground still that you can go and, and visit like for whatever reason. There's like this place out near the old Globe Theatre where you could go in and look at all these fragments underground. And it's just like under the city. And I'm like, what is happening right now? I just love it so much. It's such a bizarre... Okay, but if you come out and nobody remembers you, then you've got to live underground for the rest of your life. So I don't know if I would do that. No, thank you. I like, <laughs> I like modern yeah. plumbing too much. Where are they abluting? Where? I'm so stressed out. What is the bathroom situation in London below? I won't go camping with my parents unless there is running water. I won't go. My line is the pit toilet. As long as there's a pit toilet, I can bring everything else in. If I have to, I will... I, I will allow the pit toilet, but every time, like, when I'm in the Blue Mountains or when I'm out here in, like, the countryside, I'm like, why are we doing this? Why have we strayed so far from modern convenience? <laughs> Could we not lie at pipe here, people? Come on. 
I think it's disrespectful to my ancestors, quite frankly. <laughs> they spent all this time developing indoor yes, plumbing. and I will not besmirch their memory by not using that. <laughs> oh my goodness. Um, did you have a favourite character this yeah, week? Yeah, so this week I was going to spotlight Old Bailey because I think he just does so much here. He doesn't want to leave his roof and do this terrible thing. Like, he didn't want that silver box in the first place. And then he does mm. all of this for someone he's not entirely sure he even likes, you know. And he puts himself in, like, a discomfort. He's like an old man climbing and clambering all over things. And he has to, like hug the sewer folk, which he doesn't really want to do, and do this whole pantomime thing. But he does it anyway because, well, he owes the Marquis a favour, but also because it's the right thing to do. Like, he does it... There's a yeah. definite element here of him doing it out of the goodness of his heart. And Because what does it matter if you owe a dead guy a favour, really? Like, he didn't have to do that. And I wanted to, like, give the old Bailey a spotlight because, yeah, you know, for people who do the right thing even when they don't really want to, you know, you're the MVP. What about you? Same. Old Bailey. He was the only person I really like. I just, I felt so strongly that he did so much more mm. than was in the original agreement, right? Like he could have easily discharged the favor by simply dropping the box on top of the corpse in the pile of the sewer. Fo like he did not have to bargain with them. He did not have to give them a bottle of perfume. He did not have to hug them. He could have just literally turned up, smashed the egg containing essence de carabas or whatever, <laughs> And gone about his way. But he didn't. He purchased this corpse. He found a private place to revive him. He stayed with him and helped him to fix himself up and gave him something to drink. And then they had a conversation. Like, all of this, it's, it speaks to the integrity of not only discharging his favor, his obligation with the Marquis, but also, like, mm. the real compassion of, like, this is another person. And I just really love that because you can do the right thing or you can do the right and yeah. kind thing. Thank you, Old Bailey, for being like yeah, absolutely. I did get a very strong, like, he's just a kind old man and he is just, there's not a lot of kindness, so good for him. Well, next week we're going to be reading chapters 15 and 16 through the theme of equality, but we have a couple of announcements. Yeah, very exciting. All right, so we have chosen book three. Yay! I am so excited for this one. We're going to be reading Strange the Dreamer by Lainey Taylor, and we're going to be doing it over mm -hmm. 10 weeks, and that roughly works out to about six-ish chapters a week. So it's not as intense as this, but quite a lot happens in yeah. the book. But it has a lot of big feelings, and so I'm really excited. It's got a lot of big concepts as well to kind of wrestle with, so I think it'll be a good one. And it's not a world that really aligns with our own. It is a completely mm. alien landscape, mm. so um, it'll be a bit of a departure from us, because we've been working in amongst, like, we've been working, or we've the last two books have had like a magical world inside of like our known mm -hmm. existence. Um, and we're going to do a couple one shots just as fun things. Do you want to talk about the one shot? That so we're we do? have decided to expand from just reading books as sacred texts and do a film mm -hmm. as a sacred text. And we are going to watch The Fall together, which is Tarsum Singh, stars Lee Pace, mm. and an amazing, amazing child actor. She's just incredible. Alexandria, yeah. I think she is, is her really name. Cool. I've forgotten. Their relationship in the film. Film. It's just yeah, it's incredible. an incredible film. It's beautifully shot. It's one of the most cinematically beautiful films I think I've ever seen. And I'm just obsessed with it and have been basically since my best friend who I used to live with in the UK introduced me to it. And so it has a real special place in my heart. And um, yeah. I'm really looking forward to watching it with you and also just dying over Lee Pace. Yes. Yeah, so we have many times talked about the Lee Pace Appreciation Society. Um, and I used to run appreciation nights where people would come over and we would watch a movie. So for a while we had like Carl Urban Appreciation Nights Carl, and he stole my heart. Um, we did a few. <laughs> 
I know, he's lovely. I think we watched yes. Red, which was so, such a yep, good Carl yep, Urban big movie. Big fan, big fan, Carl Urban in a suit. i just like to point out, Carl Urban, should you ever listen to this, it is absolutely atrocious that you live in Auckland and not in Wellington. How dare you? Come to the he's Windy City, man. He's a boy, he grew up here. It's just not fair. <laughs> it's like living in Sydney and moving to Melbourne. Oh, Why would I you? <laughs> anyway. Uh, sorry, people from Melbourne. We do like you. I'm sure that you're great. It's the complete contrary nature of me that I love Wellington more than Auckland. I think Auckland is a waste of time. Sorry, Auckland. Um, but anyway, yes, so we're going to do the fall. And yeah, it's going to be so lovely. And I think we've started to make a list of other little one shots we'll also want to do. Yes, because you sent me the link to the Ghost Chips ad. <laughs> New Zealand does these incredible ads. Like, the ads in New Zealand are just unhinged because Kiwi humour is sometimes a bit unhinged. And there there is this quite famous anti-drink driving ad and um, there's this iconic line that says, I can't eat your ghost chips, which (laughs) I mentioned to Jen because it reminds me of Thor Ragnarok when Korg is running around yelling about ghosts. So, yeah. Well, thank you so much for potting with me. Thank you. It's a delight as always. I'm excited. We're getting to like the part of the book where things are really happening. All of the little threads are tying up. Yeah, it's going to be what we've got three chapters left or three sections rather. Yeah, but I think chapter 18 is only a page long, so that shouldn't be uh, too onerous. But that's no, it's like real tiny. Well, thank you. I love our chats. Me too. I can't wait for next week. Me either. I'm excited. (laughs) All right, I'll speak to you soon. Bye. Thanks for joining us today. Marginalia Pod is written, edited, and produced by us, Jen D and Jen V, with additional editing and production support by Simon B. If you enjoyed it, we'd love it if you'd subscribe, rate, and review it on iTunes. Your support means the world to us. We'd also love to hear from you. You can email us at hello at marginaliapod.com. Our music is by Scott Buckley. Many of the things we've mentioned are in the show notes, or you can find out more about us and the podcast at www.marginaliapod.com.